0: This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents.
1: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Jake Kuzarik of ArcView Ventures. Jake, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing together? Doing great. Brian and Kellen, always
0: a pleasure catching up with you guys. I'm actually, I'm not on the Ventures team. I'm on the uh, kind of main
1: Arcview group and the uh, consulting side. I apologize for that confusion. And that's um, on me. And I kind of want to dive into those topics today and kind of learn about that. So take us through that. Take us through how you got into cannabis, and then we'll kind of go into the Arcview side. Sure. And, and trust me, no fault because it is extremely complicated to navigate the web of our few different sub entities.
0: <laughs> um, and we're launching new things all the time. So I got into cannabis, um, you know, actually, you know, a couple of years ago, about two and a half, three years ago. Um, and, you know, but honestly, it was really a reaction to me following what I'm most passionate about. Um, you know, looking at most of my you know, professional and my personal life, you know, going back to, to college. I mean, you know, cannabis is something that I realized very quickly uh, is something that really helped with my depression and anxiety, X, Y, Z. Um, and then over the years, working at different companies and everything from you know my own startups and music and menswear uh, to Devon design agencies to, you know, giant fighting robot companies and uh, some of the other stuff I've done over the years. I realized, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who's, who's, you know, it's fun to be at the bar and, and buying people drinks and, and connecting that way. Um, but I was always a little bit more comfortable out on the smoking patio in front, uh, you know, with a, a joint or a vape and, and uh, you know, using that to, to kind of build connections. So to me, you know, I, I think I had a, a kind of a big moment. You know, I think this was, you know, 2018, 2019, when a lot of the blockchain stuff was falling apart that I was doing. I had some, some crazy experiences with smaller startups. And I had been left in the cold twice when uh, two companies I was at that I thought were were chugging along nicely, had raised millions of dollars. Both of them called us into the office and said, look, we're out of money. Good luck. Find a new job. Um, So I figured, look, the next thing I'm going to do, I want to make sure it's the end all be all the industry I want to be in forever. Did a lot of soul searching and naturally the time was right for me to jump into cannabis. I started building a uh, kind of an accelerator and an investor network in conjunction with some friends of mine. I was going to do like a you know $49, $49 million SPV and a million dollar demo fund and run the whole thing out of my buddy's warehouse in San Francisco and have kind of this kind of co-working accelerator component. And as I was doing that, certainly, the surprisingly, the investor who was giving me a space goes, look, he calls me, you know, about six months into this thing saying, look, I just had a great weekend with these guys from RQ, kind of doing what you're doing, but they've been doing it for a full decade, and I think they're hiring. <laughs> so ultimately, you know, he put me in touch, and, and the rest is history. You know, I uh, ended up flying down, meeting John Downs, you know, who, of course, I've, I've kind of ended up replacing on the BD side. As uh, he moved on to uh, to Asia Horizons, so doing crazy stuff with CBD and hemp in China, and then yeah, you know, honestly, I was thrown right into the lion's den. Uh, once I joined, my second week, I was uh, I was actually my first day. I was told, "Hey, do you like New Orleans? Because you're going to be in there next week for MJ Biz." <laughs> and fortunately for them, it's my favorite place in the oh, world. Yeah. So it started off really nicely. And I came at the the pivotal moment in which you know we had a little bit of a change in leadership. You know, we raised our Series A slash were acquired by Entourage Effect Capital. Uh, and with that, Troy, obviously, was taking a little bit more of a backseat role. That, that's Troy Dayton, one of the original founders of our So as it happened, you know, there was a transition team kind of in place before Kim Kovacs, uh, our, our fearless leader as CEO, uh, ended up joining. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I mean, really, since I've joined, we've gone from this investor network with you know, a couple events, you know, kind of the antithesis of, antithesis of an MJ biz. you know, not a 35,000 person mega conference, but, uh, you know, 500 people in a room, 60, 70% of that room are investors. I mean, the four events we threw really was what our view was. You know, everything else was, you know, of course, our research. Uh, which was the industry-leading most cited. But we realized we don't need to stay as an events company. We've been around for 10 years. We know everybody. We're a first or second-degree connection away from really everyone, you know, and how much money did we leave on the table by not getting a piece of Ease, Meadow, Tokyo Smoke, Pax, Mad Men, all of these who graced our stages when they were still in their very earliest phases. So for us, we got the broker dealers spun up, we got the fund spun up, we got the consultancy spun up. And these days, of course, due to COVID, you know, we put physical events back there,
1: yeah, and, and have been doing digital content every week. So long-winded answer. Yeah, and I'm looking to kind of unpack some of those. So before we kind of dive into the hard-hitting questions, let's start with the hardest one of all. Your go-to meal after consuming cannabinoids. That's a tough one,
0: and it all depends on time of day. Um, But I am, as a, a proud native Detroiter, Uh, my mind immediately goes to Detroit-style pizza. I am so pleased that over the last year or two, this has started to take off at the national level. Everybody from Pizza Hut to, you know, Little Caesars now has their own Detroit. And surprisingly, the bar uh, right near my house, I moved down to LA over the holidays, Silver Lake Lounge, has Detroit-style pizza. And it's phenomenal. So to me, there, there's nothing that puts a bigger smile on my face. And, and I'll take crappy Detroit pizza, too. I'll take Hungry Howie, I'll take Little Caesars. But
1: that's probably my go-to. You like what you like, and I got to respect that. From a New Yorker, we might challenge you for best pizza. But at the end of the day, you know, it's important that you get what, you, what makes you happy. So let's go back to your day-to-day with our few. So take us through, you know, what a normal day in the day looks like for you and type of responsibilities and type of projects that cross your desk. Yeah, I'd say that,
0: that the answer to that has changed dramatically since you know, my first day here. I mean, early on, it was, hey, I'm selling sponsorships and demo booths and pitches at our, our live events. That really ended up getting replaced by our strategic alliance program, in which we're working with best-in-class service providers to just you know, give them a dedicated rep, be able to work with them and kind of modify uh, what we're doing based on their own shifting needs. So definitely working with a lot of service providers, you know, when it comes to earlier startups, I'm I'm either kicking them over to ventures or consulting or capital, but really, you know, my day-to-day is largely at at, at the consulting side. So for me, um, we started getting a lot of inbound right when the pandemic hit from people who've been buying our research, research reports for years. And I'm talking large European ag techs, like top five companies. Large North American CPG companies. I mean, everybody was reaching, or not everybody, but a lot of people were reaching out, and you know, getting that caliber of cold inbound, saying, "Look, we've been buying your research. Now we're thinking about moving into the space, exploring this acquisition. You know, looking for to do some due diligence." And we realized, okay, we need to get this thing formalized. Uh, so David Abernathy and I did a bunch of work in 2020, everything from large enterprises down to early stage startups and really kicked off at 2021 with getting this thing independently funded and starting to scale the team. And we've been on a real tear since then, working with a wide array of, uh, of different
1: clients. Um, definitely some, some very well-known names. I'm sure. And I'm, I'm not asking to share any of the names, but if there is there like a group of type of services that come, let's say, more often than not, where you're like, wow, this is definitely the majority of ask. Is there one you can share there? Yeah, of course. So I'd say uh,
0: what we get a lot of is, you know, hey, I, I've got a bunch of money. I'm coming from real estate. I've got this site. I've got my license but I don't know a damn thing about cannabis. (laughs) Um, How do I build compelling pitch materials? How do I figure out my product mix? How do I even learn things like, you know, how to work with distros? So for us, there is a lot of the education side and building out go-to-market strategies and, and, you know, helping these these companies really get off the ground. And and in some cases, attract further investment. You know, we do a lot of work with dispensaries around SOPs. We do a lot of, you know, a lot of of founders are, are slammed. They want to open a new location, but they're tied down to their existing. They want to be able to pass the keys to someone else to keep things moving forward. We do a lot of work, you know, in the industrial and and smokeable hemp space, you know, both in in the U.S. and abroad, actually. So that's been really interesting is, is really helping different firms figure
1: out their state by state expansion strategy. And in general, you know, get ready for federal legalization. Yeah. And I think that's the fun part of the industry, right, is that with all the state by state challenges and all these other obstacles and people are like, I've got this money, where do I start? So killing. When we have conversations with operators and all the time they come to us and say, I got this boatload of money. I'm interested in being in this market or this market. Which one do you think? Where do we usually start with them and kind of take us through that process? I was going to say it
0: all, it all really depends on, um, on who the, you know, and, and what they're really looking for here. And, you know, as you can imagine, there's there's often a lot of early stage operators that are trying to figure out what the best, you know, ROI is going to be for them. There's a lot of investors, you know, that ask us the same questions around which horses to back, you know, so I think it always, it's always kind of a mix. It does come down to personal passions as well, you know, especially if they have experience in something like CPG, we're going to tell them, hey, you've already got these relationships, you know how this stuff works, you know, that's probably going to be your best bet. Others who are looking for something like, you know, a high cash business, you know, decent margins, you know, opening a retail location, doing, you know, obviously delivery, especially if they're they're launching that right when COVID's starting. I think there's a, there's a lot of direction that we can take them in. Uh, I'm personally, you know, very bullish on the beverage space. We
1: have some great connections here in California, you know, up and down the supply chain to help them really get started. Awesome. And Kellen, where do where do we take them from the conversations? I know Jake kind of shared light on, on the suggestions he says, but what do you think, you know, what's your go-to approach when having conversations with operators?
2: I would say it mainly depends on the location they're looking to kind of set up shop, right? If they're looking to go more like to California or an established market, I think it's a completely different conversation. I mean, like, for instance, if um, we were just talking with someone last, was it last week regarding trying to set something up on the East Coast and we both were like, I think it's a, a really smart play. If you want to get into New York and you're not one of the big MSOs already there, probably the most intelligent play would be to be build out a facility and try to sell it to one of the MSOs. You know what I mean? And I think that that location is absolutely critical in how you deploy that kind of capital. You know what I mean? What are your thoughts on that, Brian?
1: Yeah, I think strategically, you know, when we go back to the gold rush, not everyone was getting rich from the gold, right? There's people selling the shovels. And I think that analogy isn't heard enough because everyone kind of screams for cannabis and wants to be in cannabis, but you don't have to have a license, right? Because the game is incredibly expensive. And I think one of the misnomers that's commonly shared around is that like, oh, I can just start a business. And you're right, you can, but in the cannabis space, it's different. It's incredibly expensive. And there's all these obstacles to kind of challenge that thought process. So Jake, when people kind of come to you and they say, hey, I got this money, I'm ready to go. Are they kind of surprised sometimes by the overall sheer financial like investment that it takes because I I think at least in my opinion, with some of the conversations we have, people were blown away by some of the costs that are they're not services, they're upfront costs that they have to invest in kind of getting started. Absolutely. I I'd, I'd say that's extremely common and you know, there's so many of these emerging markets
0: where the system is far from perfect. You know, someone will will to get to be able to apply for a license, will have to secure their space but they haven't really figured out how they're dispersing license. So they just need to keep sitting on that space and paying rent and having it go into a black hole until they can get that license. I mean, these are situations that are plaguing, you know, founders all across the country. But once again, I think it's, it's hyper, you know, variable based on, um, you know, their background. You know, I talked to old real estate guys in Florida that also have huge ag tech operations in the Midwest. And they're like, Oh yeah, you know, hundred million dollars. I can self fund it. It's no big deal. (laughs) Um, you know, but at the same time, it's, you know, that's, that's an outlier. Most of the people, I think, do get a little bit of sticker shock, um, you know, and in a lot of different areas. Um, you know, even the cost of things like you know insurance and, and legal, you know, can be a lot for for many founders. And sorry for cutting you off, Colin. I did not realize that wasn't for me. Definitely a great but, job over there. <laughs> I'll tell you, that's the big decision we keep getting hit with is: Do I launch in California, build a, a strong brand identity, get that flywheel started, and then you know get requested? by users on the East coast, you know, that want to see these products come here, you know, kind of have that scaling happen organically based on, you know, positive brand identity and and reception versus do I just launch directly in an emerging market? Do I spin up in a New Jersey and try to get something off the ground? You know? So I think that's, that's what a lot of people are struggling with is, is, is it, it is kind of a, you know, do I launch directly into these markets and just be kind of one of
2: many, or do I establish the cloud first in the biggest market? Yeah. And I think that I want to make one point there. I think, Launching in California, you can approach it with a completely different business model. You can kind of treat it like a traditional industry where you're trying to launch a brand and you can go out and source your different products and kind of do your own QA, QC, and then kind of do kind of a drop ship model almost. Versus on the East Coast, who are you going to call? You have to instantly try to be vertically integrated. If you want to start a flower brand, for instance, you're going to have to grow your own flower or you're going to your Rolodex in terms of different companies to source that flower from is going to be really, really limited. You know what I mean? And so I think that that is a, a huge um, misconception that a lot of people don't really realize is that in these established markets, you are able to utilize a more traditional business model than kind of on the East Coast.
1: Jake, I get asked that question always, right? And my response is typically in a form of a question because I also don't know because if you're in California, sure, you, you have an established educational customer who knows exactly what he's looking for. But on the East Coast, that brand identity doesn't really transfer because how does it transfer, right? Is it is it the influencer who's promoting the product? Is it Cureleaf? Is it truly it? Or is it like cookies? So the direction from branding, I think, is not determined yet because cookies to me is probably the most well-known, but I don't know, at least in my opinion, I don't know if that's going to be acquired by a company down the road. I, obviously, they're working really closely with Gage and these other companies, but I don't know how that becomes a common theme where I walk into a dispensary and I'm like, okay, I want this brand. So how, Jake, how, how do you provide recommendations to these, to these customers who are like, hey, do I go to Oklahoma and set up shop here or do I kind of double down in California? And I know it's an established market with a lot of competitors. You know, what's your go-to response? Guys, I want to talk to you today about one of our new partners, CESC. CESC is a nonprofit organization providing a compelling and complementary alternative. They represent the ability to harness a flexible, collaborative approach to scientific advancements. They are comprised of leading doctors and researchers in the cannabis and cannabinoid science space for almost a decade. Their act first, talk later operating principle has now led to a successful series of disruptive innovations in the cannabis science space. They need your help now. Join them, collaborate with them, or support them. Go to the CESC.org to get involved now. Together, we can change the world.
0: I go to responses. Where are your friends? What markets do you know? Where are your contacts? Do you want to fly out to the you know, California and start everything from scratch and lean on me to make some good intros? Or, you know, do you want to, you know? especially if you're coming from a traditional side, like, you know, finance or something, you know, do you have a pool of angel investors that can kickstart you uh, from there? Do you have a good friends and family network? You know, you generally, there's a strategic advantage of being in the same time zone as, you know, where your company is most active. So that's, that's always, you know, it's an obvious thing, but it's something that I think a lot of founders don't think through, you know, they take the risk and, and move out West and hopes it work, works for the best. And, you know, especially under the pandemic, it's not as easy to get out there and network. But I'll tell you when it comes to kind of, you know, a brand identity that carries out East, you know, we have seen that, you know, and a lot of this is anecdotal, but, you know, there are requests for products that they've tried while on trips. I mean, Papa and Barkley is one that I get commonly uh, asked of, of friends on the East Coast, you know, saying, hey, you know, I was able to buy the the Pure CBD online and I was able to buy some of the three to one topical to help with, you know, my pain after golfing, you know, from a dispensary while I was out there outside of shipping it to me. <laughs> now, where can I find this? Yeah. So I'd say that's a, a huge part of it. But, um, you know, on the branding side, I'm happy you brought up cookies. You know, no one really can touch their level of you know building a, a proper lifestyle brand you know, you can't walk down the street in, in downtown LA and not see some guy wearing a cookies hat or cookie shorts or cookie hoodie. And I'll tell you, you know, it it helps by getting on Impact sun, you know, and and you know, it sounds crazy, but hitting the use, you know, looking at who's most active on social media, you know, the hype-beast culture that is so prominent, who's active in the comments, you know, who's sharing this with friends, who's using this as a cloud item versus, you know, something where it's it's you know, just medicine. And and, and really, you find that, you know, brands like cookies, and I think we're seeing more and more uh, similar competitors. I mean, even like carrots, for instance, they're doing a cannabis thing now, which is similar. You know, we're seeing similar stuff. I think even Jungle Boys is starting to kind of brand themselves in this direction. Stizzy's branding themselves that's in the direction. I mean, Stizzy as a whole... You know, they're downtown, a uh, downtown LA facility. I mean, they have a whole like e commerce store, their whole retail store. They got t shirts, they got button downs, they got music. I mean, it's like the Starbucks now where they're going to give me a Nora Jones CD. So I think all that kind of plays hand in hand. And, and you know, it becomes an interesting part of your, your retail strategy of, hey, which of these retail locations, which of these potential partners can do more than just get me sales? Who can give me that shelf space? Who can help me with my branding? Who can put me on webinars? Who can, you know, let me contribute to their blog?
1: I mean, all of this goes towards building a brand. Yeah, I think we're still in such the early stages of that, right? We saw Seth Rogan come out with Houseplant, which was really exciting because, I mean, naturally you saw the connection between the two of them. Obviously, Jay-Z is super involved with his company for more of like a leadership role. So to push it back, who's next in the space? Who, if you had a guess, what sort of big name influencer... Kind of pivots into this space. If you can share, if you don't know, we can take a guess. How does that work? I'll tell you, that's a great
0: question. I've never I've never been asked that. If he hasn't already, I, I think Joe Rogan's gonna end up doing his own. I think a lot of these podcasters are going to realize they have some very loyal fans oh, yeah. um that will eat up and, and buy and, and anything they're putting out there. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, it's, it's you know, a lot of people that are on the air, I think, are going to go this direction. You know, we've seen the athletes, we've seen the musicians. I infused dinner tonight that has a bunch of athletes and musicians involved. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're going to see it coming from weirder and weirder places. I think we're going to see Sean Hannity pushing his own CBD. (laughs) He's pushing, you know, other CBD brands now, but none really targeting conservative consumers. And this is a rapidly growing market segment. Um, I don't agree with the politics. I'll be very upfront about that. Um, But there is a big untapped market opportunity as new demographics start to get exposed
2: to this. And you have to look at the thought leaders these guys are listening to. Yeah, I think it's really well said. So Kellen, your guess. Joe Rogan's a really good guess, you know what I mean? Uh, Or not guess? I guess, maybe. An educated guess, maybe, right? Um, Who would I guess? I mean, athletes. I don't know off the top of my head. Who do you think, Brian?
1: The Rock. The Rock? I think the same style, right? (laughs) I mean, I know it's crazy thought, but if you think about it, right? The people who can generate buzz and then promote it in their natural lifestyle— in social media, you can't spend that type of money, right? If you were going to, or the Kardashians, right? God, they could just absolutely explode. If they came out with like a THCV style, like vape, it's over, right? We might as well just shut the industry down. They've absolutely crushed it. So if they are listening, we're going to have to take some sort of promotional
2: rights for that. Um, That's who I would take. <laughs> Kellen, you want to take a stab? Kardashians are good. Joe Rogan. Um, I'm not super into pop culture, so I'm terrible at these kind of... Uh... Situations so where I got to pick someone out of the blue. You know what I mean. choose a
1: scientist? Um, who's a scientist? I said, choose a scientist. <laughs> well, a guy. I just messed up. But we I can, know I'm. I'm. If terrible. it comes back, throw it up. I want to switch gears I'll and kind copy. of. Yeah, I want to come back to Jake about kind of the day to day. Obviously, we talked about the CPG and kind of the financial commitment. In your opinion, what concept is not thought about enough? Where the the people come to you and they say, "Hey, Jake, I want to get into the space." This is what I'm thinking. And they're like, they're leaning in, in this one direction to the left, but you're like, hey, everyone leans in this direction. They're, they're not thinking about this. You should be more six months in advance thinking about this direction. What would you would say? I wish more people came to me thinking about this concept. That is a really good question. Um, yeah, let me think
0: on for a second. I, I'd say it's rare that we get approached from uh, subscription boxes, but I'll tell you, my first, second uh, startup was a monthly menswear subscription box. And the recurring revenue aspect there, I mean, yeah, it's the multiplier that investors are looking for. But also, I mean, recurring revenue is a great thing to have. You know, any of going can be unpredictable. So I'd love to see people getting, you know, as regulations start to permit people getting creative here. I, I think we're going to see a heck of a lot more subscription boxes and in, in, in targeting a lot of different things, and not just including cannabis, but also improving, uh, including lifestyle products as well. I think that's a real untapped market opportunity. I mean, our CEO Kim was previously the founder of MyJane, you know, which was acquired. And that was very female focused. They'd send a rep to your house to walk through the products with you. But I'm gonna see more of these things coming through the mail once they figure that out. You know, how can we get, you know, five SKUs here? Can we get, you know, with just within California or just within one of these markets? and, and more importantly, boxes that target heavy users and real enthusiasts everything I've heard pitched. is So, oh yeah, we're trying to give a sampling of items that, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of people kind of dial in what works for them. Well, you know what? Who's buying the most cannabis? Who's buying 200, $300 worth a week? The heavy users who care about premium quality, small batch stuff you can't get anywhere else. Those real grails, you know, land race, crazy genetics, you know, stuff that you're not going to find anywhere else. I think there's a huge market opportunity. I mean, think about it like wine vintages. I'd love like you see that with wine clubs where it's, oh, we went into the cellars and we're busting out a 1993. You're going to get this in your box. Oh my God. You know, I think we're going to see that with cannabis where, hey, these genetics were smuggled out of Amsterdam and, you know, in the late 1980s and they've been sitting in my basement and I I grew them with some expert help. Uh, So you're smoking stuff that hasn't been consumed in 20, 30 years. That I think is
2: is a really interesting side. And uh, if I leave RQ, I'll probably spin up something like that. Yeah, I think Appalachian is huge. and I, I applaud California and a lot of the steps that the growers did multiple years ago to kind of push the Appalachian through. I think it's a great way to protect those genetics as well. You know what I mean?
1: I'm with you 100% too on the SAS model, right? Put together a box, just absolutely multiply exactly what it costs, and then just limit the exclusivity of it, right? Say... We only have a thousand boxes. We've got these genetics from Humboldt that haven't been seen since some outrageous date. It's exclusive offer now, but you have to commit like a 12 month thing. You're, you're 100% right. And then to take it even one step further, that brand or product skew can outside license that res- like list out to these other people because at the end of the day, cannabis acts like other industries and consumers still are consumers and they behave a certain way and they they kind of go in that direction. So I'm 100% with you on that space. I think we're we're real agreed on the exclusivity side, you know, and, and how
0: that's so untapped. I mean, you, it's everything from, I mean, look at Houseplant, you know, when when they rolled out. You know, there was a huge waitlist and people were posting all over social media. Oh, I'm on the waitlist. Oh, I didn't get any. I mean, this is just 28% THC, you know, kind of pretty good cannabis. But the exclusivity is what built the hype. You know, and you know, I think we're going to see the same thing when it comes to retail locations. I mean, certainly there's there's some big ones, um, you know, that are out there that do these kind of speakeasies. You know, and, and I think we're going to see more and more of these in in, in cities uh, throughout the country, even you know some cities that aren't fully online yet. And I think you know, taking it a step further. I mean, think of things in like in San Francisco, like, you know, the battery or the Olympic club or these these institutions that also have, you know, everything from fitness centers to little hidden movie theaters to live music. I mean, blending all of these things together and making cannabis much more experiential. I mean, it has to be exclusive. You can't make these things open to everybody or it's going to be a mob scene. And, and you know, I think. We're starting to dial that in. And obviously you can't make it open to everybody. I mean, the, pol- the the regulations just aren't there to support, you know, ex- except for going to a music festival like Outside Lands where you can purchase, you can, don't think you can consume, <laughs> but you can be around some uh, some live music. I mean, the, the real intersection of these areas hasn't been perfected yet. Yeah, we have the OG Cannabis Cafe in, in, in West Hollywood, you know, but are they doing live music, you know, uh, is there, is it a,
1: you know, like a members only type of thing? um so much on tap territory here. Kilan and I hit a speakeasy in New York with the jam band when we walked in it had a dispensary a jam band and it was a, it was like a hidden it was crazy. I, when they told us about it they're like hey just knock on the window. Uh we were like this is this is super weird and then they opened up the elevator and we're like this is out of control. Like, has this been here the entire time? How many days is this here? How, how is this like not shut down? But it was awesome. And it was one of those where like, I wanted to tell every single person and they were like, where was it? And I was like, it was the corner of this street and this street. And they're like, I went there. I didn't see anything.
2: I was like, it's probably one day only, but it was yeah, pretty my enough. buddy, my buddy who actually uh, lives right? in Manhattan tried to go back to it and he said it wasn't there anymore. So they like must move it. And it was pretty, pretty wild. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> if it's New York, I think I know who it is. And, and they're planning a, a relaunch uh, in the, the legal markets. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, they were heavy on their lounge aspect. They always had a lot of celebrities and athletes in there. Our few love, love, love doing our little after parties when we did our New York events there. And uh, just going there with a bunch of investors and, and you know, other,
1: other, other friends. So we'll get back to those days soon. So why not switch gears slightly? Recently, Harvest and Truly have announced Truly was going to acquire Harvest. I want to know, in your perception, how long does something like that take to come together? Years. These relationships form years ago, and you grow comfortable with. I mean, decision to
0: merge, you know, is a big one. You want to make sure that it's going to be a company and, and another team that you feel very aligned with, both personally and professionally. You don't want to be if you're tying in with somebody. It can't be a group of jerks. <laughs> so you know, I think in general, a lot of these relationships, you know, they get catalyzed. You know, places like you know, one an art, art view event or an MG Biz event, or you know, even just in a random you know chance encounter. You know, and I, I've met some great people at an airport, you know, before that were in cannabis that ended up becoming close connections. Um, so I'd say you know, it takes time to build that trust, and if you're partnering, especially companies of that level. You know, chances are you've known each other for for quite some time. So I'd say at least a year or two. But, you know, I'm happy you're talking M&A because we're squarely in the age of it right now. So smaller companies, you know, you can get acquired sometimes for a song and a dance. You know, hey, what do your numbers look like? Hey, where are you based? Okay, well, we're a dispensary that's trying to vertically integrate as much of our shelf space as possible. Let's, uh, let's get your pre-rolls as our pre-rolls now. Or uh, some of these big Canadian companies, you know, the big Canadian publics, they're coming down to the US and they're just doing roll-ups of, of a bunch of brands, brands that might even be doing you know sub 10K a month in revenue. They just want to be able to snap up as many of these things as possible and get bigger and bigger. So yeah, very weird time for m I'd say the relationships that work out the best are the ones that have the most time, care uh, and face time put into them.
1: Do you think other companies like GTI or Cresco or Cureleaf accelerate their plan based on a step like that? I mean, that's an aggressive move by Julia, then obviously, it's not a land grab, like Kim said. She she strategically understood exactly what she wanted. But do do you think other large operators feel the need to kind of respond? You know, grassroots cure leaf was probably the bigger, you know, gum to Jesus
0: moment for them where they're like, okay, we really need to start thinking about, you know, if it makes sense to go it alone or if there is a way we can, you know, dominate the the whole country. I mean, all of these MSOs, you know, raised a bunch of money. Their goal is to scale organically state by state, but as competition heats up, that timeline does get shorter and shorter as these other big mergers occur the timeline gets shorter and shorter because they're snapping up territory everywhere. So yeah, I, I would say it absolutely does. You know, get them accelerating their plans a little bit, getting a little bit more creative, and you know, even testing the waters. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the biggest firms send out more or less uh, secret shoppers to interview for some of these companies and, and learn as much as they can about you know where they're headed. Or, uh, you know, needless to say, people are getting poached, you know, you're looking at people, you know, (laughs) competitors and you're realizing, you know, let's let's pull LeBron James and bring your talents to South Beach and (laughs) have you, uh, you know, have you start somewhere new. Yeah, this
1: industry sure has the cash to kind of acquire top talent. So I want to kind of take it one step further and then we'll dive into the prediction. Biggest misconception since you started in the cannabis space? I mean, it's the classic answer here is that you know, you you do. It all
0: depends on who you're talking to, and you know, it's often a lot of you know people inexperienced with cannabis, maybe had it during college, who thinks it's you know, it's it's doobies and blunts and getting high, and that's the only people who still consume the stuff. But you know, now you see, I I got a little anecdote here, but you know, case in point, there's what God's Greenery. You know, there's somebody that showcased an arc view before that's. You know, it's, it's, it's cannabis, it's CBD, but it's really tying it into Bible verses and, 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 you know, building this kind of religious connection to cannabis. You see the same thing in India with Ayurvedic medicines and, and how that's influencing the product mix for some people. So to me, the stigma is starting to disappear. Certainly, you know, retirement communities are, are doing cannabis parties now and, and exploring these products. So I'd say that that's while that's the kind of the default answer, you know, I would say the better answer and the most shocking misconception I get would probably be something around, you know, higher THC products are the only thing you need to look for. They're going to get you the most high. They're the the best ones out there. Um, I think the sentiment shift is happening. I think we're seeing it. I'm seeing it on my own LinkedIn and Facebook and all that jazz. But, you know, I think somebody put it this way that I really liked. I think it was Jessica Sharp, actually. She said, Look, you don't walk into a liquor store and just get 151 every time. You're there to find something that that, that fits your mood, and um, and in general, you know, getting something that's that's very terpene rich, getting something that's very fresh, um, you know, getting something that has a high, you know, minor cannabinoid ratio here, where you were dealing with, the, you know, the CBN, the CBG, and and everything in between. You know, that's starting to be prioritized as people start learning about these other cannabinoids and learning about terpenes and having the, you know, the Pepsi challenge of here of having something that might be super high THC that's been sitting on the shelf for six months and it's outdoor versus something that is, you know, this beautiful bounty harvested last week of some really exclusive genetics, you know, even, you know, places I like, like, like flower co where I get all my own cannabis, you go on there and they have a section for their freshest products, which I have not seen anyone else do. So I'm, I'm seeing that sentiment shift and, you know, I know that's a little bit more on the consumer side, but it does bleed into the investor side where we have people reaching out, you know, or operator side saying, yeah, I just you want know, to cultivate and make sure everything is over 30% THC and that's going to be our differentiator. It's like, okay, not really a differentiator <laughs> anymore. And also a very myopic view of, of what makes cannabis good. So, or beneficial to the health. Hi y'all, I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked, the podcast. If you're looking for a -a one-of-a-kind cannabis-infused getaway, I invite you to join me in the beautiful wine and weed country of Sonoma County, California. As a cannabis lifestyle guide, I've cultivated a -a one-of-a-kind farm stay experience where you can enjoy the casually-baked lifestyle and the magic of sun-grown cannabis farms and vineyards. Now, if you're into wine, weed, or both, get ready to have a high-time customized just for you. Learn more at casuallybaked.com backslash travel. That's casuallybaked.com backslash travel.
1: Right, and that, and that kind of educational knowledge comes with experience and, and trial and error. So it takes kind of time, and as the markets kind of develop and consumer becomes more educated on the various kind of characteristics of the cannabis plant, I think those will continue to be really, really important. If you can sum up your experience into a lesson learned or main takeaway to pass on to the next generation, what would that be? Obvious one here, but cannabis industry is
0: so intertwined with sustainability, with climate, with economic justice, with social justice, with racial justice. I mean, so many people still in prison for this. It's, it's, it's mind boggling. And the great work of people like Last Prisoner Project to help with that, you know, gets highlighted, but not nearly enough. If you're not in the industry, you might not know any of these names. So, you know, I think for me, it's, it's, I hope the next generation really does take that to heart and, you know, make it part of their own identity as well. You know, we don't want to see this thing become, you know, we're, it's, it's going to be, it's inevitable, but we don't want to see this thing become, you know, craft beer where, you know, the first couple of years, 20, 2012, 2013, a lot of choices out there. A lot of people that are supporting each other, lifting each other up, sharing secrets, sharing recipes, doing collabs. Into this massive consolidation of okay, your AB and bev. If you want, you're a bar and you want to have my products, you got to carry these ha- these tabs, and then we'll give you this craft one that we're we're pushing now. I'd say what I love about this industry the most, and one thing that makes it truly unique as somebody who's worked across a million different random industries, is this is the one where people that are competitive have no trouble supporting each other a lot of the time. My favorite stories are, you know, I had an issue where a client came to me looking for gummies and, you know, I was like, Hey, I need somebody to manufacture these gummies. I kicked it to some guy I thought would be perfect. He goes, look, we're good at hard candy. We're good at tablet gummies. I'm not the best at instead. Let me cook you over to somebody. It's a direct
1: competitor, but I think they do great work. You do not see that elsewhere. I hope that carries on. Yeah. Last time you consumed any cannabinoids. Uh, surprisingly,
0: I didn't have my morning CBD or, uh, I'm a big fan of the Woof Sciences crappies team who i know you featured before. Thanks for um, sponsoring the podcast again, Benicola. <laughs> that guy's the best. Uh, one of the, my favorite people in the industry, just a warm, warm dude who is super knowledgeable and does great work. I did pop one of, uh, his CBN tablets uh, last night, you know, before I went to bed, CBN in general has been really helping me not only sleep better, but have dreams again which is something that as a frequent cannabis user, I've really missed. Potley and their CBN honey. You know, it's either crappy CBD CBN or it's Potley CBN and melatonin that I take, you know, every evening. But I would say I, I run our accelerator program the real answer here is I got done with last night's uh, companies that were, uh, were showcasing and getting mentor feedback. It was a long night, and the first thing I did was uh, fire up the volcano from Finest uh, that I wanted to try some fresh-squeezed OJ. Uh, so packed a couple volcanoes of that uh, and uh, enjoyed my
1: nightly Netflix and crappy <laughs> and reality TV. Perfect. All right. Prediction time. It's more of like a hot take, uh, but we can just call it in the prediction side. With Alabama set to legalize medical marijuana and more and more states coming online with adult use, is federal legalization even important anymore?
0: It is because, you know, the one thing that I'm, I am I think is going to happen here is they're going to really leave it up to the states, even if they decriminalize or legalize at the national level, you know, to to kind of make their own rules the way they have with, with booze, you know, having package stores in, in you know, the East Coast versus, you know, grocery stores in, in 10 states can you know also serve liquor and, and all that jazz. And there's Whole Foods down here with a craft beer bar and a wine bar and Irwan has a natural wine store here. I mean, it's, it's crazy the, the differences, you know, in, in, in these different areas, but I'll tell you, you know, what I really see happening here is because they will decriminalize you'll buy your, your cannabis compliantly in Illinois as an Illinois citizen. And you're on your way to visit some friends in Indiana and you'll get pulled over. And then, you know, unfortunately it's, it's Indiana. I think at the federal level, there has to be that guidance there, um, you know, which, which doesn't lead to you getting a ticket. You know, because if you bought it compliantly and you're not driving under the influence, Indiana shouldn't be allowed to say, no, you can't have that anymore. So that's how I think it's going to play out. And why it is so important is because people do not stay in one state. Look at the East Coast. You have states the size of postage stamps, you know, I mean, come on, Delaware, Rhode Island, get it together. You know, um, you know so I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to, to kind of think about cross-border commerce in general. I don't think it will just be a free-for-all. I think that will nuke a lot of markets if they do it but they will leave it up to states to determine if they want to have cross-border commerce and accept cannabis coming in from adjacent states. In smaller states where they do not have the space to do you know, cultivation at scale and, and refine products at scale, it's going to make sense to import it from the guys next door who are doing it. In other states, that's going to completely new competitive advantage and really destroy the existing market and operators there. So we'll see how it plays out, but I'm excited. I'm grabbing the popcorn either way. Kevin,
2: Two points. I think that federal legalization is important for tax purposes and banking and all of those monetary perspectives. I also think it's really, really important for the psychological aspect of the American population, as well as the world population, right? I think that having the federal government come in and say, okay, this is legal now, or at least decriminalized, I think that that does wonders for all of those really, really conservative individuals out there who still think that it's the devil's lettuce or, I mean, who was that Oklahoma senator the Nebraska. Was that who, was who said the Nebraska that Center. you consume it, it'll kill your kids or whatever. Like, I mean, it, those kind of things just need to completely stop. And with federal legalization, I think that that kind of draws a line in the sand from a, a psychological perspective, at least. I still think
1: people like him will say crazy shit like that because I don't know what provoked him to say that. Obviously, there was no information about it. He just kind of went for it. And, and maybe it's financially motivated. So I'm going to take a different approach, and I think it kind of blends both sides, where it depends on who you're talking about, right? If a uh, everyday user just wants to consume cannabis, doesn't they don't really care about it. If their state goes wrecked and they can get it, they don't really care. But for, I think for the industry to continue to grow and these kind of handcuffed restrictions to be removed, I think it's incredibly important that you know the government kind of goes forward and takes that. Obviously, the interstate stuff is going to be incredibly detailed and, and complex to kind of itemize out how those things work. and. You know, thank God those guys get paid a ton of money in order to figure those things out, because that's going to be incredibly challenging. So I guess we're all in agreement in some aspects of that. Oh, yeah. Well, I think
0: those who are trying to figure it out, you know, candidly don't have a strong knowledge of, of cannabis. And, you know, we have some connections at the State Department. We you know catch up with them by the time. And they're a sponge. They're eager to learn as much as they can. They want to make sure they don't drop the ball and do things regarding international cannabis import and export. That's going to kill our industry. So I, I have seen a real olive branch extended, even on both sides of the aisle. I mean, we had Corey Gardner and Earl Blumenauer on the same webinar. You know, they're very opposed on everything but cannabis, you know, Barbara Lee, Earl. I mean, these, these are the people who call David Abernathy from our consulting team and ask them, hey, you know, the, the more acts coming out, here's some of the new amendments. You know, can you review these? Let, let us know your thoughts. You know, we want to make sure this is good policy. So there is a real, you know, I'd say a bipartisan effort for for a lot of our, our elected officials to, to learn this inside and out. We're going to be headed to Shreveport, uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, to do stuff involving some Local local government and local investors to educate them around this, and they're transparent. We know we think cannabis is blunts and, and all that jazz that we just don't don't agree with. So you know I see this as a great opportunity to to blow some minds, change some misconceptions, and thank God we have things like you know golf, <laughs> which has embraced CBD and, and cannabis you know so heavily. You can't go to a pro shop now and not see you know topicals and you know it started to get um, you know I, I'd say kind of you know, recreation and entertainment. I mean, it's hitting both sides of the aisle and, and no matter who you are, there's now a cannabis product for you. That's, you know, it, it's going to cure whatever you're struggling with because everybody's struggling with
1: something. Absolutely, especially after the pandemic. So Jake, before we wrap, where can our listeners get in touch with you for operations in the space that are looking to kind of learn more? You know, where can they find you?
0: Yes, to circle back to the beginning, the complex nexus of park views and different sub-entities. I'm really easy to get to because there's legit four people in the country with my last name and and they're all my family. So K-U-C-Z-E-R-U-K, you can find me on every social media channel because I'm the guy who snaps up slash Kuzarek on everything. Sorry to everybody in Eastern Europe, I beat you to the punch on (laughs) Clubhouse, Kuzarek at Gmail, Kuzarek on LinkedIn, got it all covered. That's the easiest way to reach me directly. If there's anything I could personally help with through ArcView, we have lead forms right on the website. So I would say go to arcviewconsulting.com, A-R-C-V-I-E-W consulting.com. And you can get directly over to me. My direct email is jakekusrek at arcviewgroup.com. I'm usually pretty responsive. You know, definitely get a lot of inbound. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, in, in general, I would say for those that just want to learn a little bit more, go to arcviewaccess.com. Take a look at some of our webinars, the digital content that we've been pumping out, the replays of some of the past ones, um, and just get a sense of who we are and what we do. And I think from there, you know, regardless of what your objective is in connecting with ArcView, be it an investor, an operator, press, whatever. I am kind of the glue that can route you to the right department. Arcview Ventures has their own website. There's even an intake form if you're trying to submit your just startup to raise money. Arcview Capital got their own
1: website. So arcviewgroup.com, you can get routed to everything from there. Very long-winded, I know. Yeah, I think the webinars were a great resource, especially during the pandemic. So I definitely encourage everyone who's looking to learn more to kind of go through those replays because there's a ton of really valuable tidbits in there that are still applicable to today. So appreciate your time, Jake. Thanks for your time. Kellen
0: and Brian, I can't thank you enough for featuring me. I got a real kick out of this. The format caught me a little bit of surprise at the beginning. Yeah, I didn't realize it was a group combo, but I'll tell you, uh, I really enjoy this. This was one of the, actually the favorite podcasts that I've done because not strictly business questions, not strictly cannabis trends all over the map, which I think is what, you know, it's
1: the education that regardless of who you are, it's what you need right now. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. We're going to clip that and put that as our intro. Thanks, Jake. <laughs> See you guys later. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.